Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. There have been some suggestions that have been floated by others around having a climate trigger, for example, which is changing our environment laws so that any new coal and gas project, you'd have to take into account climate change before you could approve it. Um, That's been floated. Uh, The Climate Council has put forward an idea and said, well, look, why don't we just, rather than stopping new coal and gas projects, why don't we put a pause on new coal and gas projects while we work out what our environment laws will look like? Because, of course, the government has said they're reviewing those and that's coming up later this year. We would look at all of those, um, any suggestions that are put on the table, and we consider them in good faith. Hello, lovely people of Pods, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Australian Politics, and I'm Catherine Murphy. And delightfully with me this week from Melbourne is uh, the Greens leader, Adam Bant. I've brought Adam onto the show because, uh, you know, just about every issue really uh, that's moving through the parliament at the moment, uh, Adam and the Greens are in the centre of the discussions uh, about. So, Adam, welcome, first of all. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. No worries. I will get to a number of issues, obviously, in this conversation, and I also want to have a chat to you about leadership as well, uh, but I want to start with the safeguard mechanism. Now, uh, for folks listening to us who, unlike Adam and myself, are not obsessed with climate change, and if the safeguard mechanism is a new concept for you, the simple version of it is this is a, this is policy that the government is pursuing at the moment. It's a, it's a mechanism basically to reduce uh, pollution from some of Australia's heaviest emitters. So, you know, this is things like aluminium plants and and other sort of big polluters. Now, uh, obviously, we're at a point, Adam, in this debate now where you are engaged in negotiations with the government about uh, what final form this legislation will take. So what can you tell the listeners about where things are up to? Well, as you said, this is a proposal that was Tony Abbott's idea initially that covers uh, coal, oil and gas, as well as the aluminium glass makers and, and the like, as you've said. And its supposed intention is to get them to reduce their pollution. And 57% of the pol- pollution that's covered by the scheme comes from coal, oil and gas. So the um, the heavy manufacturers and the like are actually in the minority. It's primarily a scheme that applies to coal, oil and gas, but it, of course, applies across the board. The big problem with the scheme is that it allows 
coal, oil and gas pollution to rise. And in fact, even on the government's own modelling, they're going to open up so many new gas projects that pollution from gas under the scheme will continue to rise. And the way that that happens is is permitted to happen is that they're told that they can, uh, quote, offset their pollution. Um, So pollution from coal, oil and gas can keep going up as long as they buy some tree planting permits on the other side of the country. And there's no restriction on the number of new coal and gas mines that can be opened and that can come into the scheme as long as they also buy enough permits. The um, That's the fundamental sticking point, I guess, for us in negotiations at the moment is that the scheme, which is meant to regulate coal and gas, actually sees coal and gas pollution increase. And this at a time when we're told from the World Scientists, the International Energy Agency, Um, that uh, the UN Secretary-General, that we can't open any new coal or gas projects if we're to meet climate targets. So would we, the Greens, have chosen a safeguard mechanism, Tony Abbott's mechanism as a way of cutting pollution? No. Do we think the government, do we agree with the government's targets, their 43% target? No. Um, Do we agree with offsetting as a way of dealing with pollution? No. We've said we're prepared to put all of those concerns aside and pass the mechanism in full if there's one change, which is don't open up new coal and gas projects because that will just not only blow the budget, but um, it will put any chance of having a safer climate at risk. That's where, uh, obviously, we're apart from the government at the moment, is the government's got a very strong desire to keep opening new coal and gas projects. Um, We're trying to stop that. That's uh, an area that we will continue to pursue. We'll have discussions and continue to have discussions with the government in good faith. We've landed previously on um, the climate targets legislation, on uh, hybrid electric vehicles legislation, on the gas legislation from last year, even though that wasn't our preferred position. We're happy to work with the government um, to see if we can land somewhere and that's what we're going to, that'll be the focus of the coming weeks. Okay. And uh, I just want to be clear, I think you've actually answered the question, but just so that I'm clear and the listeners are clear, obviously your your opening position uh, on the safeguard, Adam, is as you've described, right? What you've asked the government for is a ban on new new uh, coal and gas projects. Uh, from what Chris Bowen has said publicly, a ban, uh, you know, capital B ban, uh, is not something that the government can give you. So I'm I'm curious, from what you've said, I think the answer is yes, but I just want to be clear. Does that mean that you are prepared to now negotiate on the technicalities and the detail of the scheme or is there some sort of middle ground here uh, that I'm that I'm missing? Because there's a bunch of technicalities I want to run through quickly. If we're sort of if we're moving in a direction where that might be where the talks are coalescing. So the position that we put on the table is it's an offer, not an ultimatum, and it's us saying we're prepared to compromise on targets, we're prepared to compromise on the mechanism, we're prepared to put aside our concerns about offset. So it's already us heavily compromising on a number of areas and saying we'll pass it in full but don't make the problem worse. Don't open up new coal and gas projects because that's completely unjustifiable uh, in the middle of a climate crisis. 
the government has said publicly, well, no, we don't um, we don't agree. We want to keep opening coal and gas projects. I think ultimately that um, position from the government is ultimately an untenable position. Um, it's we've got the Pacific Island neighbours. Uh, pleading with us to stop opening new projects, the UN Secretary-General in the context where Australia wants to host a climate summit, ultimately that position from the government is untenable. What we've, And so we want to hear the, the government justify it. I mean, in a, in a good faith negotiation, it's not enough to just say no without giving an explanation why and a convincing explanation why in a, in a parliament that where power is split and no one party has a majority in both houses of parliament, you can't just sit there and say, no, we want to keep opening up coal and gas and not not, not give a justification um, for what I think is an ultimately an untenable position. There have been some suggestions that have been floated by others um, around having a climate trigger, for example, which is changing our environment laws so that any new coal and gas project, you'd have to take into account climate change before you could approve it. Um, that's been floated. Uh, the Climate Council has put forward an idea and said, well, look, why don't we just, rather than stopping new coal and gas projects, why don't we put a pause on new coal and gas projects while we work out our, in what our environment laws will look like? Because, of course, the government has said they're reviewing those and that's coming up later this year. We would look at all of those, um, any suggestions that are put on the table, and we consider them in good faith. Um, for our perspective, what we're saying is we, we've got to deal with this question of opening up new coal and gas mines because that's that's not only untenable and uh, is going to put a safer climate out of reach, but it's even going to make meeting the safeguard mechanisms in the government's own targets more difficult because these projects are so huge, like the Beetaloo Basin, for example, um, you're talking about up to 11% added to Australia's emissions just from that one project alone. So there's a real question in, when it comes to the integrity of the scheme as well about what is going to be the impact of opening up all of these new coal and gas projects. So we're happy to have, if people have got other ways of dealing with this question, and as I say, it is an offer, not an ultimatum, um, we're happy to look at those, but it's got to deal with this question of the desire to keep opening up coal and gas mines and also the, the fact that pollution from coal and gas grows under the government scheme potentially, like that's a real concern. You've mentioned one of the issues I was going to put to you by way of question, which is is, is one way through this to basically um, stop the assessment of new projects until such time as the rewrite of the environment law is complete. You've referenced that a minute, minute ago, that that's something that you might look at. That's something the Climate Council has suggested. I want to put a, a few more things to you if I can. Uh, I've heard what you've said, that the government needs to answer you know, the point about rising emissions under the scheme and the future of new projects. But there's there's a there's a couple of things on my list that I'm interested in in your view about. There's a view around from uh, some advocates that, for example, one of the things that would be worthwhile having on the table in this discussion is that the safeguard mechanism doesn't proceed until such time as all of the recommendations of the recent Chubb review are implemented, for example. Uh, just quickly, guys, if, you, if you're not across the Chubb review, this was a review of carbon credits, the integrity of carbon credits, and that's quite important to this scheme. So is that something that would be relevant or 
of interest to you, Adam, in this discussion? Yeah, look, the uh, any proposals, we're going into this discussion in good faith and our goal is to see climate action and to see pollution from coal and gas in particular start to come down because coal and gas are the main causes of the climate crisis and uh, we've got to get um, that under control. Um, so we, that's that's the outcome that we want to get to. Now, we've put an idea on the table about how to do that, which is stop opening coal and gas mines, and we think it's one that's got the backing of the science. We think science and the people are behind us on this because, um, of course, you know, 57% of people agree with our position of not opening new coal and gas mines, and it's 66% of people uh, 18 to 34. If others have got other ideas, so, for example, around um, the Chubb review, like we're happy to look at them um, and consider any proposals that are put on the table in good faith. And I don't want to run um, all of those discussions, I guess, in public um, other than to say here's, here's what's guiding us as we go into these discussions. What's guiding us as we go into these discussions is um, you know, pollution from coal and gas should go down, not up. And uh, like it, it's as simple as that. And at the moment, because the scheme sees pollution, say, from gas keep going up, um, on the government's emissions projections because they want to open up all these new massive climate bombs, that's our concern. And um, it is helpful to have others coming forward with suggestions about ways in which that could be addressed and we'll, we'll look at them all in good faith. Yeah, and look, I appreciate that this is sort of, to some extent, a, a, a sort of doomed exercise, this conversation between you and I, because obviously good faith negotiations don't, don't happen in public, right? Um, so I, in a way, I'm sort of, you know, I feel bad working through this list, but I, I feel as though we need to, right? So there's, uh, so I'll just do a couple more uh, because I've heard you in terms of obviously you don't want to have a negotiation in public, but just a couple, a couple more obvious ones, right? Chubb's one, no, no new projects until overhaul of the environment law is another. The safeguard is sort of oddly a cap and trade scheme without a cap. I'm wondering whether or not, to your point about pollution can't keep rising from fossil fuel developments, whether looking at a cap, like a hard cap in the scheme, or whether new entrance to the scheme, to your point of no new developments, gas or coal, whether new entrance to the safeguard mechanism would face more onerous treatment than established incumbents, either of those of interest? Well, again, if we end up with a scheme where pollution from coal and gas goes down rather than up, as is the trajectory at the moment, um, then that that broadly is where we want to get to, um, because that's that's what's driving the problem is um, is coal and gas, and so those ideas about having a a cap or what you do about new projects that come into the scheme are obviously ways of um, addressing what might happen to coal and gas. So again, it's less of an issue. But again, I don't I don't want to uh, run those negotiations in public. But the first, the starting point is a point of is a point of I guess a, a, there's a, there's a question about whether or not the government agrees that they want pollution from coal and gas to go up or down. And that's that's the real that's the nub of it. Like we could we can have discussions about how we um, deal with all of these things, and we'll, we'll continue to have those discussions. But Broadly, if the idea is that 
coal and gas mines can keep opening up and existing ones can keep chugging away and putting pollution into the atmosphere, then that's that's a point of difference between us and the government. And you like these these projects are so massive that um, you you can't offset your way out of the climate crisis. You can't offset your way out of some of these uh, these projects. I mean, in the Northern Territory, um, gas basins, for example, we're talking about the equivalent of 68 years worth of Australia's pollution tied up in there, right? And the, these are massive, massive climate bombs that uh, need to stay in the ground. And I want to reiterate the point too that we like the Greens' position would be a staged phase-out of thermal coal by 2030 and we would like to see a managed phase-out with supported by job guarantees and a transition authority um, but done in a, sta- in a managed way because uh, we think that's what the science requires. But um, we're prepared to put that aside. We're not talking about existing projects in our proposal that we're putting on the table. We're just saying don't make the problem worse. You can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. And that is that continues to be, and from you see this from the um, from the public statements, that continues to be a point of difference. Mm. And also, uh, it's sort of interesting this week uh, with the government uh, with the announcement of some new policy in relation to superannuation, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, that that it's sort of like a a, a telegraph before you pay scheme to to, to the extent that. Uh, the government didn't have a mandate really to shift superannuation taxes because of discussion pre-election. I mean, I regard some of that pre-election discussion as stupid, but nonetheless it occurred. So now Anthony Albanese has basically said, well, we will uh, increase tax on, uh, you know, above certain super balances to take effect from 2025. Is there anything there to work with in terms of stage timing? Because, like, the the debate around banning new projects has sort of become a bit arid to the extent that you guys uh, say you want that and and you're correct to say that the science requires that, but the government says, well, we've got no mandate to do that. That's just not possible. And, you know, the the thing the government doesn't say but is nonetheless true is their pathway to majority government is obviously through seats where this where any sort of a ban of any description would obviously be red hot politically. So... Do you see what I mean? Is there something in the ti- in the sort of delayed timing of something that that gives you a place to go in negotiations? And then I promise you, I will change the subject from negotiations because I'm I'm trying to respect the fact that you and Chris Bowen are trying to you know have a conversation to get some policy made. So, is is there anything there to work with? Look, I, I think that well, I mean, there's a number of uh, important points in your question, I think it is worth noting that the government has been prepared to say, well, the the situation turns out to be different than we thought. And I mean, who would have predicted necessarily that inflation was going to be where it is pre-election? And the government's now saying, we have to take the circumstances as we find them and respond accordingly. And I guess I would say if they can do that with superannuation, then surely we can do it with the climate crisis and 
understand the representations that are being made by our Pacific Island neighbours, understand what happened at the first climate summit that the government went to. Um, the urgency of the situation is getting worse and we're running out of time. I, I think people would uh, would accept a shift from the government's, what the government says is its position. Secondly, in terms of what you said about uh, seats, Western Australia, et cetera, the con- Peter Dutton is a long way from ever having majority government and this is one of the opportunities, I think, that we have in this parliament that the penny perhaps hasn't quite dropped yet from the government. Um, it's very difficult to see what the Liberals and the Conservatives' pathway back to majority government is. There are people sitting in the parliament on the crossbench in the House and Senate who will back the government going further on um, climate. And in terms of those seats that we're talking about, again, I come back to the point, we're not saying do anything um, with respect to stopping existing projects. We're talking about new projects that haven't yet commenced. And there's massive opportunity for government in that space, and they would have our strong support to step in with other plans to build infrastructure and create jobs and support workers with a wage guarantee in those areas. It is, I think, a very politically palatable proposition to say we'll invest in other ways in those areas to replace the jobs that might otherwise have come in the future because we're not talking about existing jobs. We're not talking about existing jobs. And so, and I think that's a critical point that I don't know that the penny has yet dropped with the government. And look, in terms of your general point about the specifics, uh, again, um, I don't want to be cutting across what what we might be talking about in negotiations in good faith. But again, at the moment, the difference is one of approach where um, the government's saying, no, we want to go hell for leather and keep opening up coal and gas projects. And we're saying that's untenable. If there's a shift, if there's a shift from the government and an understanding that we can't keep opening up coal and gas projects and saying that we're going to manage the climate crisis, then of course we'll have discussions about what is the um, what might be an appropriate way to manage that. And part of the reason I think that the Greens did so well at the last election is that we put the question of employment and jobs and the future of coal and gas workers front and centre in our campaign. And I was really explicit uh, about saying that coal and gas workers deserve a vote of thanks for us for helping um, power our economy. We now know things about coal and gas that we didn't before, but we've got to be on the side of coal and gas workers because they are not responsible for the climate crisis. They and their communities are not responsible. And so our platform was very much focused on uh, transition authority, wage guarantees for people working in these areas, in- incentives for new business in these areas. We understand very, very clearly that there needs to be a plan for workers and for communities. That plan cannot happen overnight. We need to start now, but it's a, it does need to be a staged plan. But again, it's that fork in the road moment where the government is still saying that they're um, they're not that they want to keep opening up more coal and gas projects, and that is what that that makes things difficult. Well, it's uh, I think they're sort of uh in terms of what they're leaving their options open around it's sort of more it's more gas than coal, isn't it, really? And you know, I just think you there there are you know, you can have legitimate differences of views, right, depending on 
who your core constituency is. Like, I would love to do a whole pod with you, Adam, on, you know, labourism, um, given you're a labour lawyer and what complications that might pose, you know, for a labour government as opposed to the Greens. But, you know, sadly, anyway, we've got to, we've got to get through the list. So we need to keep forging forward. So I think you've been very clear uh, that you do actually want to reach some sort of agreement with the government on this. The concern I would have even though I think there are a lot of legitimate concerns about the safeguard mechanism, uh, about the integrity of carbon credits, about the the speed of the transition that we've just discussed. Uh, I think all of that's completely legitimate. But I guess the question I would have, if the safeguard mechanism is torpedoed, then where does that leave us? We're sitting in Australia in a veritable graveyard of discarded policy mechanisms in order to reduce emissions. And if the safeguard mechanism is effectively torpedoed as a consequence of these discussions, then where does that leave us? Can you answer that question? Well, uh, ultimately, the uh, I mean, my energies, as you just said, uh, at the moment um, are focused on trying to ensure that we take climate action and that we pass it through Parliament and that it's got support to pass through Parliament. And that's that's my focus. I guess one of the shifts I think that has perhaps not been fully appreciated by the government is that, yes, they made their way to majority government just, but their vote went backwards. And we now have a situation where less than a third of the country is voting for the government, a bit more than a third is voting for the opposition, and about a third is voting for someone else. And that is reflected in the Senate probably more, but you also see it reflected in the House of Representatives as well. And yes, the government says this is the policy that they took to the election Um, and the Prime Minister in the last sitting week in what I think was an odd effort to try and persuade people to get behind the scheme said everyone should pass this scheme because it's been endorsed by Woodside, Shell, Rio Tinto, Origin Energy and the Minerals Council. I mean, yes, of course it has because it allows them to keep on polluting and it's no wonder that the coal and gas corporations are lining up to support it. But you saw at the election a massive desire from the Australian people for us to take climate action And the parties and the independents whose vote went up were the ones who were realistic about coal and gas and the need to get pollution from coal and gas under control. So at some point, uh, to avoid the situation that you're outlining, Catherine, at some point the government needs to acknowledge the new desire amongst the Australian people and how they want to be represented. And that means it's, it's not possible for them to just continue to insist that it's their way or the highway and um, you either have a scheme that's endorsed by Woodside and Rio Tinto or you have no scheme at all. Uh, At some point, the climate's got to get a look in. Like at some point, emissions have to be reduced and at some point, coal and gas corporations need to understand that they can't keep expanding and for us to still meet our climate targets. And um, there needs to be... There's going to need to be some meeting of minds on that. Um, that's how you avoid what uh, the scenario you've outlined. Well, it's, uh, it's a scenario that I hope none of us will have to contemplate. Um, picking up from this last sort of deliberation, if you like, right, like um, 
how do you how do you keep moving towards change, uh, which is obviously something that preoccupies you deeply and genuinely. You're you're an interesting Greens leader because you're not from the environment movement. That's not where you've come from, and there is a sort of theory of change within the Greens uh, that's very much grounded in the permanent campaign. I'm not saying that as, as a sledge. I'm just saying that diagnostically, right? That the that the campaign to achieve change happens outside of institutions and it's about pushing sort of ideas until their until their time has come in a way, right? Or at least try to accelerate the time <laughs> in which very sensible ideas come. I'm not expressing that in, in the most erudite fashion, but I think you know what I mean. You're not from the environment movement or that hasn't been your background. You're a Labor lawyer. You've sort of come up through left politics. So I think you're a really interesting Greens leader. What is your own theory of change? I assume with you, Adam, you are in the most powerful institution in the in in the country for making change, the Australian Parliament, because you want to achieve change. But I'm putting words in your mouth. What is your own theory of how you lead and how you achieve change? Look, before I um, came to Parliament, as you're referencing, I spent a lot of time representing a lot of low-paid workers um, and some progressive unions in this country in their uh, industrial campaigns and their industrial fights. And I think what's clear to me in all of that is that you need both, right, and your ability to drive change, including your ability to drive change within institutions, really uh, relates a lot to how the strength of the campaign on the streets and on the ground and having social movements um, is critical to getting change in institutions and both feed off each other and one won't be totally effective without the other. And part of the reason that we um, were the first, that Melbourne was the first place to go Greens in the lower house at a general election is that we switched very much to a um, model of empowering our uh, our supporters and our volunteers and running a really strong people-powered campaign on um, on the streets and on the doors in Melbourne. And I think that that spirit continues with us today and is part of the reason, I think, that uh, of the success in Queensland as well, really strong campaigns on community issues um, that weren't just conducted in Parliament but that were conducted together with the community and that I think is is the way forward for us. And so I think it's absolutely critical to have both because it has been campaigners, it's been forest campaigners, it's been climate campaigners, for example, that have helped put some of these issues on the national agenda and have, in fact, through, in many instances, through um, direct non-violent action managed to stop logging, mm. for example. Like that has actually re- resulted in things happening. Um, but you need both and continue to support both. And I'm acutely conscious that uh, as parliamentarians, uh, the, 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 it, it's, a, it's an error for parliamentarians to think that change can only come from parliament. Um, so in, indeed, over recent history, you uh, we've had some good gains in parliament and then perhaps there have, we haven't had a strong enough movement on the ground to back up those gains and some of them have been reversed by the Murdochs and the Abbots and the like. And so I think um, we've, we, we've got to do both or neither will succeed as well as it could. 
Yeah, and obviously I didn't mean to frame that question as a binary because obviously the two are connected, but it's sort of different. I think different party leaders, not just of the Greens, but the Greens are interesting because of your history. You know, different leaders have slightly different emphases around, you know, where, where you sit on that curve. And just a related question, we need to get to housing and super quickly in a minute, and we will. <laughs> just very quickly, though, obviously, uh, one of your own senators, Lydia Thorpe, departed the Greens recently, and I'm not asking you to rehash any of that. There's just one question that I'm interested in, just through that prism of leadership and theories of change. Uh, obviously, like in the crudest terms, Lydia Thorpe walked out of the Greens and said, the Greens aren't radical enough on the voice, basically. I want to create my own black sovereignty movement. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in how that event has uh, affected your base, uh, sort of where the balance of that is, right? Like, I think that's a hell of a thing to say, uh, one colleague to say, or a reflection to make, right? We're not radical enough on this point, so I'm going to do my own thing. Has that uh, has that perturbed the base? Are people upset about it? Like, where where is that left you? Oh, I, uh, there's like me. There are um, a lot of people who are sad and upset about it, and the uh, Lydia uh, was a respected figure in our party, and a number of people joined the party and be- became involved uh, because of Lydia. And I've still got. Um, a huge amount of respect for her. And since that's happened, I've spent a lot of time with our um, First Nations network and with members of the party talking with people. And I think the people now understand and are clear that uh, we still, that our party is still um, a party that is pursuing treaty, truth and voice. And in fact, part of the reason that we came to a position where we could support the uh, the issue of voice and felt comfortable um, about doing it was that progress around those issues of sovereignty and around treaty um, during the course of uh, of this parliament uh, that the public commitments that you've seen the government make um, that was critical for us and I think as people increasingly understand that look we're um, we're supporting voice because we want to see progress on all elements but we're still going to continue to push these other elements that are important to us and in fact that's what makes us different. I think people are starting, you know, beginning to understand that. But yeah, look, of course, for um, for people, especially including people who were close to her, it's been a tough time. But I think as it all, uh, as people now come into the, I guess, the aftermath of it all, and understand that we, as the Greens, are still on the same course. We're still we still have our policy determined at a grassroots level by members. Um, and we're still sticking the course. I think it's given a lot of people a lot more confidence in where in 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 um, where things are going. Okay, uh, let's. I'm sorry, I'm compressing this radically now. Uh, superannuation, yes or no? <laughs> superannuation tax uh, changes, yes or no? We're we're happy to have a good look at that. We haven't had the chance to meet as a party room in Parliament since the government's announced it. So that's, I can't announce our position on that because we'll sit and have a good look at that. Uh, our concern is that um, it's effectively a, quite a modest proposal on superannuation for higher income earners, but many of the same people are going to be the beneficiaries of the $9,000 a year tax cuts under the Stage 3 tax cuts. And so you uh, potentially not even robbing Peter to pay Paul, it's robbing Peter to pay Peter. If this money is going to fund the quarter of a trillion dollars of stage three tax cuts, 
then inequality in this country is going to continue to get worse. So we'll meet as a party, we'll have a look at their um, their proposal, but the, there's a lot more that could be done in this country to reduce inequality and address the cost of living crisis. And I'm concerned that um, whatever savings come from this measure won't find their way to everyday people to address the cost of living, but are potentially going to do things like fund the stage three tax cuts. Uh, but setting aside stage three, which is, again, a legitimate point, but uh, but there's also a case to sort of improve fiscal buffers, right? You know, the government will be able to address the next inevitable crisis a whole lot better if the budget's in a better position than it is currently. So, so that's, let's put that's a, let's not... put a windfall tax on the big gas corporations. Let's <laughs> stop giving um, billions of dollars every year in public subsidies to coal and gas. Uh, let's have a look at uh, negative gearing and capital gains tax for people who've got multiple properties. Uh, if the, I think I've said this to you before, um, like we've got this massive opportunity in this parliament to do some really significant reforms that would set this country up, to, including to deal with the inequality crisis. There's billions of dollars there that's going to the big corporations and the very wealthy that we could claw back and instead use to get dental into Medicare or lift income support above the poverty line and really deal with some of those questions that you're talking about and put the country in a really good position to deal with the next shocks so that the shocks don't get um, borne by everyday people who get asked to tighten their belts even further. And um, that, if we embarked on that kind of process... They could sail through Parliament. Like I, I think, there's this there's, the government's busy but timid, and every now and then they gesture towards these big problems that the country is facing, and then their solutions just don't recognise the scale of the crisis. Look, I think if Anthony Albanese uh, acts the stage three tax cuts and instead use the money to put dental into Medicare, there'd be parades in the streets. They'd be erecting statues for him in in the town squares. And there's the opportunity to do that in this Parliament. <laughs> uh, what about um <laughs> sorry I was I just was struck by an image of a statue of the prime minister in the street it was it was a sort of mildly alarming image sorry just put me off put me off my rhythm entirely um uh okay a couple of other things uh the uh, labor's housing uh initiative and also the national reconstruction fund you're involved in discussions on both of those where are they at so our concern about the reconstruction fund is that we don't want this to be a slush fund for uh, coal and gas, and you can imagine future ministers, or if there's you know a, a change of government a decade away, if this fund is still there, you, um, without sufficient protections, you could see them using this as a way of funding coal and gas infrastructure. That's what uh, that's our primary concern about that. With housing, nothing for renters, and um, no guarantee of spending. They call it a multi-billion-dollar fund, but actually, it's a gamble on the stock market and if the if it doesn't make a return in any given year like it didn't last year then it means no money for social housing so uh, it needs not only something for renters and um, significant investment in first nations housing but we need spending that'll address the scale of the crisis and even if labor's plan was you know adopted in full the housing crisis will get worse and to our mind a policy that sees if implemented in full that sees the housing crisis get worse uh, is one the government significantly needs to improve on having discussions with the government about uh, with, it, with the government about both of those 
And uh, what's the prospect? We'll have to, this will have to be the last one, sadly. We could go on for a bit, I think, you and me, but uh, <laughs> but I think this will have to be the last one. Uh, obviously, Parliament, unless I've gone mad, Parliament is resuming next week. Uh, what are the prospects of a landing point on the safeguard or, or housing or reconstruction or all of the above next week? Well, the, the um, government's obviously got a timetable and the government's got a budget coming up. I can't forecast what is going to happen other than to say myself and my team, our portfolio holders, um, are devoting our time to this and we'll give whatever time is necessary to try and progress this and including when we return to Parliament next week. So don't know is the short answer other than to say we, we understand it's important, um, there's an opportunity for some significant reforms here and we'll put our efforts into trying to make it happen. I thought reconstruction, though, I know I said last question, but I just this is your opportunity to correct me if I'm wrong. I thought reconstruction was was sounding quite positive in terms of the dialogue between you and the government. Is that the case or have I misunderstood? All of the, uh, our concerns are pretty clear and the the government has said publicly, well, it's uh, the model for them publicly, they've said this is you know, the, the successful Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which was obviously something that the Greens and Labor established together back in the 2010 parliament. And part of the reason that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation has withstood so many years of attacks from the Liberals is that we built into the legislation some guardrails around what the money could be spent on. And, of course, we saw Angus Taylor tried to say gas counted as clean energy and start um, changing the definitions within ARENA and um, and so on. So we're saying, well, look, if that's the model, then there's there should be a way of replicating it in this. And uh, I think the government hears us. I won't speak for the government, but... Our position on that is pretty clear and we think um, shouldn't be too difficult. But again, we're having discussions across the board with all of them in good faith uh, and the ministers are talking to us um, in good faith about these issues and if we can um, land a position obviously where we see the problems start to get better rather than get worse, then we're up for that. Mm, okay. Uh, thank you for your time, Adam. Um, I appreciate it. I know the, the listeners will also appreciate hearing, you know, hearing both of us relax into a conversation rather than race through a 10-minute uh, interview where, you know, grabs dominate and you don't get to sort of drill down. So I appreciate you making the time. Uh, Miles Martignoni is the executive producer of this show. Thank you to you guys for listening. We will be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.